Uh, well, welcome today. Glad to have you joining us. You know, if you have been uh, uh, with us over the last number of weeks, we have been war working our way through uh, the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 6 and now into chapter 7. And it's all been about sin. We've been talking about sin and how to deal with sin in our life. And, and this concept, this idea that there is sin and that we shouldn't be sinning, this is one of the major, major obstacles that many people have when it comes to considering whether they're going to become a Christian or not. Because you see, a lot of people have the perception that when it comes to being a Christian, it's all about this topic, about dealing with sin. Uh, so in their minds, Christianity is this long, long list of rules. Do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there, you know. And, and the whole idea is that you, you're trying to keep the right rules uh, because if you do, that'll make God happy and you'll be good uh, and, it, you know, it will all be good. And if, and if you break the wrong rules, then God will be unhappy and you'll be a bad person. And, um, and the challenge with that is that people end up uh, living with this whole idea of, of guilt and shame if they do it wrong and, and they become self-righteous if they do it right. And in many people's minds, this is what the Christian faith is all about. It's really about sin management. Uh, and it just goes on day after day, year after year, this sort of long slog about trying to stay on this sort of narrow road of doing it right. And... There's nothing appealing about that kind of life. And, and that's really the only thing of their perception about Christianity, is, which is true. That if that's what Christianity, Christianity is about, there is nothing appealing about it. But fortunately, that's not what the Christian life is about. Unfortunately, there are still many Christians who think that that is indeed what the Christian life is all about. And in the passage that we're going to look at today, the Apostle Paul is going to explain that that way of thinking was once the way that people thought, but that it is no longer the case now that Jesus has, came, has come. Now, if you've been uh, tracking with us on the, uh, as, as we walk through what Paul is arguing in this chapter, is you know that he's been using a number of ana analogies. Uh, the, the first analogy uh, was, uh, the idea of being baptized. He says, look, we, when we are baptized, it symbolizes our, when we go under the water, it symbolizes our death to sin, a death to our old way of life. And when we come out of the water, it symbolizes that we've been raised new in Christ. And, um, and so what he teaches us there is that when we came to Christ, we died to our old way of, of sin. Meaning not that we're never tempted by sin, but that sin's power over us is broken. That's the first analogy that he uses. But then the second analogy, the one that Pastor Dan talked about last week, was the analogy of slavery. And uh, Pastor Dan pointed out, I mean, the Apostle Paul points out that we are all mastered by something, by someone. Somewhere, no matter whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, there is something or someone that drives your life, that, that guides your life. And the Apostle Paul says that when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, what drives our life and guides our life should be Jesus and not sin. We need to make a conscious choice to submit to Jesus. Well, now when we come to this passage, the one we're looking at today in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, Paul is going to use a third analogy. And it's the analogy of divorce and remarriage. And... Um, and he's going to use it to help us understand that the Christian life is not about sin management at all. It, it isn't about making sure you do this right and that right and keep these rules and don't break those rules. What Paul wants us to know is it once was that way, but it isn't anymore. 
In fact, he's going to show that the, the Christian understanding of how to deal with sin is profoundly different than that. So in a minute, we're going to dive into what Paul says. But first, but first, I want you to imagine that you're married and that between you and your spouse, it never seems that there is enough money. Now, some of you are saying, well, so far, I'm not really doing a lot of imagining. And that's probably many of us. But, but, but nevertheless, I mean, let's say, or maybe it's real that you and your spouse, you know, you don't have a lot of money, which means you spend a lot of time doing money management. You, you, you're always careful when you buy things. You're always looking at the prices. Sometimes you're saying we're going to have something less nice because we can afford it. And you spend your time at the end of every month making sure, like, I hope we have enough to pay the bills and, and hopefully we have enough that we can pay off some of the credit card. And there's just this constant kind of pressure around money in your life. And, and if you, for whatever reason, you get to the end of the month and there isn't enough money to pay the bills or to pay off the credit card or whatever it is, then you feel defeated or discouraged or maybe ashamed or maybe even you feel con condemned. But then sometimes, some months... Actually, you do all right. Some months, there's a little extra money. You pay all the bills. You pay a, a bunch against the credit card. Or, or maybe you have money to go out for a special dinner or to treat yourself to something. And then you start thinking, huh, well, maybe I'm not so bad at this money thing. Or, or at least I'm not as bad as I used to be. And your, whole, your whole world is this sort of constant pressure around money. Okay. Now, maybe, may, maybe you didn't have to imagine that part. But then imagine this part. Imagine that now one day you meet a fabulously uh, wealthy man or, or wealthy woman and, and there's this attraction between you and that person. Now, if you were, after having met them, if you were to go home and divorce your spouse so that you could be married to that fabulously wealthy person, that'd be wrong, wouldn't it? I mean, everyone would say, what are you doing? You're, you're a gold digger. You're a jerk. It would be totally wrong to do something like that. But, but if your spouse died for legitimate reasons, I mean, <laughs> if, they, if they died and then you met the fabulously wealthy heir or heiress and you married them, it'd be no problem at all, right? Why? Because your spouse died, your first spouse died, and so you were released from that marriage. And, and people would say, oh, how nice that you, you were able to get remarried and how fortunate that you managed to remarry to someone who's not only you like, but is incredibly wealthy. Totally different situation. But then, then imagine that once you marry your second spouse, the one who is fabulously wealthy, that you still lived with the same attitude towards your money. In other words, you still were always really nervous about whether you'd have enough money to pay the bills at the end of the month. And you were very careful what you shopped for and, and you were always very frugal and you only bought the cheapest item and you fretted all the time about money and you worried that you wouldn't have enough uh, to, to pay uh, for all of the, of the things that you had. And generally, you just didn't enjoy the new wealth that you had. I mean, it, everything in your life was still about money management. If that were the case, it would be a little weird, wouldn't it? I mean, people would say, like, you're kind of missing out on something fairly significant in your life. Now, now you're probably saying, look, believe me, if that happened to me uh, in my second marriage, if I had all that money, it wouldn't be a problem. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sure that'd be the case for all of us. But amazingly, that's kind of what's happened when it comes to sin in our life. 
Hey, amazingly, when we came to Jesus, he brought this new way of thinking about sin. And yet many, many people still live with that old mindset. They still think that following Jesus and dealing with sin in their life is all about do's and don'ts and making sure that God's pleased and that we don't, you know, end up on the wrong side of, of all of the things that he's doing. And that's what Paul is going to talk about in this passage that we're looking at today. Here's, what he, here's how he begins. In Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, he says this. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. So, in the opening verses of this chapter, the Apostle Paul explains that at one point we were married to the law, so to speak. But then he says, but we died to that relationship and therefore we can now be married to Christ, to Jesus. That's the analogy that he's using here. You see, you have to understand what he's talking about when he talks about the law. The law he talks about here is the law of Moses. And you remember how that came about, right? When God led the people of Israel out of uh, the slavery in the land of Egypt, then he had Moses lead them through the, the, the wilderness until they came to Mount Sinai. And there Moses went up the mountain and God gave him the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are kind of like the, kind of like the table of contents, kind of like the cliff notes of the laws that were to come. Because after that, there was 600 more laws that, that came. It was a significant list of do's and don'ts for the people of Israel. And when, and when God had given Moses all of those laws and all of those commandments, he came down and he presented them to the people of Israel. He explained them all to them. And this is what they said in response. They said, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Except they didn't. Not even close, which was a significant problem. Because you see, what we don't notice when we read the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, but what the people of the ancient world would have been very clear to them is that it is formatted and written in the shape of an ancient, uh, ancient legal contract. In fact, scholars call that kind of a contract a Caesarean bilateral treaty. In other words, it was a, written in the format of a treaty between a, a powerful ruler and a, a, a group of people that weren't as powerful. Uh, and so uh, it was uh, explaining the kind of relationship that these two parties would have. And of course, the powerful party uh, set and dictated the relationship with the, power, the party that wasn't in power. And what Moses wrote down, uh, the treaty between God and the people of Israel was this kind of a treaty. It's called a covenant agreement and known simply as the law. Listen to this kind of language that comes in Exodus 34. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. See, he says, I've made a covenant, a treaty, between God and, and the people of Israel, outlining what that relationship would be like. And because of the type of contract that God used, it was a contract, it was a treaty that was bilateral and conditional. 
In other words, it was between both parties and there was conditions attached. In fact, listen to, listen to what God says in Exodus 19. You'll hear that language. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you out to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and if you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you'll be mine. Uh, be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You hear that language, right? If you do this, then I will do that. There's all these conditions included in this treaty. In fact, if you read to the end of the, the law of Moses, in the end of uh, the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, there's this fascinating chapter that lays out what happens if they fail to keep the conditions of the law. Uh, and it is all kinds of blessings if they keep the law. So there's this whole section. If you keep the law, if you're obedient to what the, this treaty says, you'll be blessed in this way and that way. But if you don't, it lists all these curses, all these bad things that will happen in people's lives for failing to keep the law. See, here's the thing about the law. The, the law is very unforgiving. The law is actually about condemnation and judgment. And we know this, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but there's been times where the flashing blue and red lights have appeared in my rearview mirror. And when I have pulled over and rolled down the window, never once in all all those times, not that many times, but in all those times, never once has the police officer come to me and said, Mr. Newfeld, I have pulled you over because I want to tell you what a great driver you are. In fact, I think that you are an excellent driver. And so to thank you for that, I want to present you with this Amazon card for $169 that you can buy whatever you want with. I mean, it's just never happened for me because the law doesn't work that way. The law is about judgment and condemnation. In fact, at one point, the Apostle Paul, in a letter to the church in Corinth, he writes this. He says, the law is the ministry of condemnation. Imagine that. He says, the law is all about this ministry of causing people to feel condemned. That's what the law does. It condemns. The problem is that sometimes Christians are still trying to live under that kind of a mindset. I mean, don't do this. Don't do that. If you do, God will be, you know, if you do the right thing, God will be happy. If you don't, he will be mad at you. And they, and they feel this condemnation because they can't do it all. Or if they do happen to do some of it, then sometimes they become condemning of others because they're saying, look at me, I can do it. You can't. What they're doing is sin management because they think that's what Christianity is all about. And Paul says, wrong, 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 wrong. You see, if that's what Christianity is, then there's no wonder that there are people who find nothing attractive about it. We wouldn't find that attractive either. But here's the thing that Paul is pointing out in this passage. That covenant doesn't apply to us anymore. It applies to the people of Israel who lived under the law of Moses at least 2,000 years ago and much more than that. We died to it through Jesus. That's what it says in verse 4. We were married to the law, but we're not anymore. It doesn't apply to us. None of it applies to us. Instead, we have a new covenant through Jesus. I mean, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about the new covenant. Here's what he says. He says, for if there had been nothing wrong with the, that first covenant, the old covenant, the law of Moses, then no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and therefore I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Right? I mean, you see, he's talking about the law, and he says, it's conditional. They had to do this, and they didn't, so therefore I didn't have to fulfill my part of the law. It was conditional. It was a conditional covenant, and they failed. But then he goes on to say this. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will, know, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins. He says, Now I'm, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. It's going to be a different kind of a covenant. They're going to know my laws because I'm going to put them on, the, on their hearts. And then he says this. Here's what he says. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Isn't that interesting? He calls the first covenant, the law of Moses, he calls it obsolete, out of date. It no longer applies. It hasn't applied for at least 2,000 years or more. See, here's the point that he is making. Sin management is an, absolute, is an obsolete way of thinking about sin. You see, if you think that the Christian faith, if you think that your faith in Jesus is about managing your sins, making sure to get it all right, make sure, and the way you're thinking is, is 2,000 years out of date, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that you should not think that way because it's a wrong way to think about sin. You've died to it. It no longer applies to you. So that's cool. Like, okay, Paul, that's awesome. But then, but that raises the question, so then what is the Christian way of thinking about sin? Well, that's what he's going to explain next. Here's, here's what he says in verse 4 to 6. He says, so my brothers... You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, he says, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Paul says it was like we were married to the law, but we died to the law. And now we're married to Christ. So it's a totally different lifestyle. It's a totally different way of thinking about sin. We're not under sin management anymore. <clears throat> it isn't about do's and don'ts. It isn't about, you know, earning God's favor or being in the doghouse with God. It's about living the kind of life that Jesus lives. About, about uh, serving and loving others about giving your life away for others, about having an ongoing relationship with God. It's about joy in the midst of sorrow and peace in the midst of chaos and hope in the midst of darkness. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of lifestyle that is vast and expansive. I mean, it, it's like marrying a fabulously wealthy heir and, and spending all of your time not worried about the bills and not worried about the expenses, but rather about using your money to bring joy and peace and life to others. I mean, that's what Paul calls life in the spirit. It's forward-looking. It's life instead of death. It's, it's freedom instead of condemnation. And you don't spend your whole time worried about sin because the laws of God are written upon your heart. In fact, Jesus makes it really simple. He, he 
took all 600 plus laws and summarized them down into two commandments. Here's what he says. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He says this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He says all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. See, that's the Jesus way. And if we live that way, as the Apostle Paul points out in this passage, we will bear fruit for God. There'll be all kinds of richness and beauty that comes out of our life. See, when it comes to dealing with sin in our lives, the point that Paul is making here is this, that we are to live in the new way of the Spirit. Now, you might be saying, wait, wait, whoa, 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 Jonathan, are, are you saying that the Old Testament law doesn't apply to us at all in any way? That if we follow Jesus, that we are to live the life of the Spirit, that it simply is like love God and love others? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, I'm not saying that. That's, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying, and that's what Jesus is saying. I'm just telling you what they're saying. And if you struggle with that, you should go back and read what Jesus and Paul say about it. You see, on the other hand, it's yes, that, that is what they are saying. And you might say, yeah, well, what about the Old Testament laws? I mean, do none of those apply to us anymore? I mean, what, wasn't, you know, wasn't that given by God himself? Do we just write everything that God says in the Old Testament law? Well, that's a good question. And if that got you fired up, you can imagine how fired up the Jewish readers, the Jewish Christians who read Paul's letter would have been. I mean, they would have been, they would have gone crazy upset about this. And so Paul's going to address it next. He's going to answer that question. Here's what he says in verse 7. He says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would have not known what, the, what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. Paul says, listen, the law was good because it was necessary for us to know what sin is. So let's go back to the analogy, to the analogy that we started with. Was the first marriage when you and your spouse, when you didn't have enough money or, you know, you had just enough money all the time, was that bad simply because you didn't have tons of money? Of course not. In fact, it was really valuable for you because you would have learned the value of a dollar. If you had simply married wealthy right away, you might not have appreciated how valuable money was. And instead, you might have wasted it or, or looked down upon others because they didn't have as much money or maybe spend it all lavishly on yourself. But because of that first marriage, after your spouse died, you appreciate so much more the value of a dollar and the power of the resources available to you. And that's, that's what Paul says the value of the law is. It helps us understand what sin is. See, there's a very clear standard of what sin is. Jesus makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount. The apostles and prophets make it clear in their writings in the New Testament. If you're uncertain, about, I don't know now, what, I mean, what's sin or what's not. If you're uncertain about that, there's very clear places that you can go to understand what that's all about. Living by the Spirit doesn't just mean that you listen to your heart. And say, oh, well, I think, uh, I think it's okay for us to do this or that because it feels good. Nor, nor does living by the Spirit mean you listen to whatever the culture is screaming in your ear about what's right and what's wrong. Not at all. But the fact of the matter is you know what's right and wrong because it's written on your heart. God, God has given it to you. It's not a huge list of do, do's and don'ts. It's about living by the Spirit. Paul says the law was valuable in its time. 
it helped us know what sin was. But, but he points out that the law also had a fatal flaw. Here's what it says happens to him when he learned that the law forbid coveting. Here's what he says in verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. See, Paul explains that that, that way of dealing with sin, that the sin management way of trying to keep the commandment and uh, this commandment and that one, instead of making it easier, actually makes it a lot harder. And, and you know this if you've ever been on a diet. Now, I, I haven't needed to diet to lose weight, but there was a time in my life for various reasons where I needed to go off sugar. And, um, and I have an incredible sweet tooth. I mean, besides candy, there's pretty much nothing sweet that I don't love. But you know, it was only when I decided I had to go off sugar that suddenly I saw sweets everywhere I went. I mean, I couldn't turn around without seeing a sweet. In fact, at home, if there was like a pastry in the fridge, even if I would just walk by the fridge without opening the door, I could hear its muffled cries in there. And I mean, if I opened that fridge, four, four, four shelves packed with food everywhere and all that I could see, the only thing I could focus on was that pastry. And it called out to me and it was so lonely. It was so sad. It just wanted someone to make it feel useful in its life. And what is that? Well, why is that? I mean, that, that's what happens when we focus on what we can't have or what we shouldn't have. And that's how it worked under the law. The, the, the obsolete way of dealing sin, with sin. You see, the more you focused on it, the more you tried to manage it, the more it consumed you. But if you focus instead on Jesus and what he's doing and living life the way he calls you to do, then sin loses that pull on you. See, the law was good. It helped us know what sin was, but it wasn't effective in preventing sin in our lives. The obsolete way wasn't effective in, pre in preventing sin. So we don't live under the law. That was the old covenant made with people of Israel. It was conditional. It was about blessings for obedience, but also curses for disobedience. At the last Passover, Jesus inaugurated a new covenant with us. It was not only new, it was a completely different kind of covenant. See, the, the kind of covenant that Jesus announced to us was much more like the one that God made with Abraham when he promised Abraham that he would bless all the world through him. And that kind of a treaty, that kind of a covenant was known as a promissory covenant. Unlike a bilateral caesarean treaty, this, uh, that, which was the law, this kind of covenant was unilateral and unconditional. In other words, one party made a pledge to another party and took full responsibility for, for fulfilling their promises with no conditions attached. When God made that covenant with Abraham, this is what he did. He called Abraham to, to bring a ram and a goat to split them in two and to separate them and then to wait. And, and the Bible tells us that when, when it got dark in the evening, when the sun set, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and then there appeared a a smoldering pot and a torch that passed between the two carcasses. It represented God. He was passing between those two carcasses. But Abraham was not required to do the same thing. Because see, what God was saying is, Abraham, I swear that I'm going to do this, and it doesn't depend upon you at all. 
There's no conditions attached to this very thing. The treaty that he made with Abraham was unilateral and unconditional. And that's the same kind of treaty that Jesus made with us as his followers. On the night that he was betrayed, I mean, before, just before he was uh, taken away, where he was beaten and whipped, where he's forced to carry a heavy cross, and then, and then his hands and feet were pierced with nails, and, and a crown was put upon his head, a crown of thorns, so that the blood flowed down him. The night before, he says, he, he says this, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He says, in my blood, I make this covenant, and it is for you. And like Abraham, we didn't have to participate in that, in that covenant ceremony. Jesus established a new covenant with us that was totally unilateral and completely unconditional. And that's the covenant that we live under. You see, you, me, we are dead to the law. No more sin management. It was good in its time and its place, but it was never meant for us. And now it's obsolete. That way of dealing with sin, that, that way of thinking about sin, that's, that, that whole sin management was fulfilled and completed through Jesus' death. As the writer of Hebrews says in another place, Jesus is now the guarantor of a better covenant based on better promises. So if that's the case, then here's the question. Why would you, why would anyone who wants to follow Jesus live under the old covenant? Why would anyone see their life of following Jesus as one long, long slog simply to manage the sin in their life and to think about it and to always be working to get it just right? That isn't the Christian life. That's shame and guilt and condemnation. And it's doomed to fail. It cannot be accomplished. Instead, we live by the Spirit, following Jesus actively and allowing His laws, which are written on our heart, to guide us in how we live our life. See, that's, that's the promise for those who are followers of Jesus. That's the good news of Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you. We thank you that in Jesus we have a, a, a new relationship with you, a different kind of relationship with you. And God, where we have confused that, God, we, we, we repent. God, may we not live with a sin management mentality. May instead we live full on by life, by the Spirit, just following after Jesus and doing what He calls us to and allowing Your Spirit to guide us so that we do what is right, so that we avoid sin. And Father, Your, your standards are very clear. They haven't changed. But how we do it, how we think about it has. So forgive us where we've got it wrong. Help us to live in light of what You're doing in our life. We thank You for Jesus. We bless You for Jesus. May we follow Him wholeheartedly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining us again today. Glad that you uh, are participating with us as we open God's Word and hear what it says. I want to send you off with these words from the uh, writer of Hebrews says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is in his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure blood. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. May you go this week knowing that you have a covenant relationship with a God whose promise to you is always faithful. Have a great week. See you next week.